Hello and welcome back to the God's Story podcast. I'm Brent Siddle and today I'm joined by Harriet Connor, the content editor of Growing Faith in Sydney, Australia. She's the author of two books, Big Picture Parents, Ancient Wisdom for Modern Life and Families in God's Plan, which is the one we're talking about today just out from YouthWorks Media in Australia. She is also a prolific writer of articles. She'll tell us at the end of the podcast where you can find her articles. Uh, Harriet, hi, welcome from Sydney. Hello, thank you so much for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure. And I'm just sorry that my co-host, Rido, the Reverend Ian Reid, a fellow Sydney cider, is not with me today. He's contending with five small children. Okay, <laughs> that's fair enough. <laughs> what is growing faith? Growing Faith is an online Christian magazine for parents. It's a ministry of YouthWorks Media, which is the publishing arm of YouthWorks, which is the youth department of the Sydney Anglican Diocese. So we put out um, article, new articles every week in an effort to encourage and equip parents, primarily Christian parents, uh, for their work in the home. And the Sydney Anglican Diocese, I should add, for those of you who've not been to Sydney and seen the incredible work done by the Sydney Anglican Diocese, the youth work over there is quite something, isn't it? I mean, I, I was a student at Moore 20 years ago and I rocked up to a church, an Anglican church on a Sunday night and found myself with 300 young people. Is that still happening or has the numbers dwindled somewhat? Yeah, I must confess I don't actually live in Sydney or in the Sydney Diocese at okay. the moment, but uh, most of our readers do. And uh, we do hear lots of encouraging stories about uh, how God is working in churches. Yeah, I belong to a different Anglican Diocese, but oh, sorry. Uh, my work, no, that's all right. My work with Growing Faith is focused there uh, in the Sydney Diocese and, and further afield because as you say the Sydney Anglican Diocese has is a great blessing not just in Sydney but their resources and their encouragement and their biblical example I think really ripples out much further afield. You were born in London I noted when did you move to Australia? I was only two or so uh, my parents were met here in Australia and married here in Australia and then did the Aussies in the UK thing oh, okay. and came yeah. back with two daughters yeah <laughs> as you do <laughs> <laughs> now I know that you're a linguist how did your interest in languages develop according to my parents I have always been interested in languages they tell me that at the ripe old age of two, I was imitating my uh, childcare workers' Cockney accents in London and uh, asking for l'addition, s'il vous plaît, on a family trip to France. I don't remember those things, but I do remember just always being fascinated by language and uh, in my younger years, particularly foreign languages. But I think in my work now in writing and editing, I'm now delving more deeply into the English language. How many languages do you speak, Harriet? Just out of interest. Properly, I speak English, um, <laughs> Spanish and German, and I've also learnt French and Japanese in the past, but I'd have to say they're extremely rusty, those ones. <laughs> My goodness me, that's a lot of languages. Five, isn't it? When did you become a Christian? Interesting story. I suppose God has an interesting story in everybody's lives. I don't remember a time when I didn't have a concept of God in my life. He was, if a child draws a picture, they draw, you know, the sun, a rainbow, a house, a family. For me, a sort of father figure, God was in that picture too. But my family didn't talk about God or read the Bible or pray or go to church or anything like that. But I did pay attention in my primary school scripture classes or religious education classes. 
I listened and I believed and um, I just kept growing up Christianly as I grew older. I know I was a Christian by the time I was about 12 because I found some old prayer diaries from that time, but that was independently of my family. And you, you were keeping prayer diaries at the age of 12? Well, yes, I know. I've got a 12-year-old son now, <laughs> so it's interesting to think about. Okay, so that shows a, a fairly mature faith, even at the age of 12, to be keeping prayer diaries, I would have thought. What sort of things did you write in your prayer diary when you were 12? Well, interestingly, the first prayer was always, please teach me how to pray. Um, <laughs> That's a good prayer. And I did notice um, coming up a lot was um, I pray that I might become a missionary. I don't know if I even knew what that was back then, but uh, I certainly had. Well, I grew up in a fairly internationally minded family. So I guess from a Christian perspective, you've got that global um, global perspective. Were your parents travelling often or were they working overseas? Or They did bits of both of those things. They okay. certainly travel a lot for pleasure, but they've also worked in different countries. Okay. What's, um, what made you want to get involved in ministry or how did you become involved in ministry? Well, I suppose just being involved in your local church uh, as I grew you know, people kept asking me to help with this or that, whether it was leading in a youth group or um, doing pastoral care, being on a pastoral care team, or um, I guess in that sort of age where you might be studying at university or a young, young person, you've got time, you've got energy, and you try out lots of different things. Uh, and I was at a church that really encouraged me to to do lots of different things. I was leading services, that kind of thing. And, wow. Um, yes, I, I wasn't quite sure. It's a fairly unusual sure. church. That's a fairly unusual church. Yeah, well, it was a really vibrant church with lots of young people and we were all involved in different ways, whether that was singing and music or um, welcoming. There's lots to do in a church. And mm, um, so I guess that just whetted my appetite and... I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do, but I knew that I would love to go and study the Bible. Um, part of my conversion was also attending Christian holiday camps run by Anglican Youth Works, actually, um, when I was younger. And I think I thought Bible college would be like three a three-year-long camp. <laughs> uh <-huh. laughs> so, I, uh, so I signed up. At what point did were you disabused? Of that notion. <laughs> uh, I loved Bible college. It wasn't quite as rosy as a camp, um, but I did live on campus. And I guess growing up in a non-Christian family, when you uh, live in a Christian community for the first time, it is so liberating and wonderful and encouraging and enriching. So yeah. I did love it. <laughs> I, I found my my time and uh, I went to two theological colleges, one in, in Sydney the well-known one in Sydney, or one of them, and uh, and one in England. And I loved, I'd, I'd never lived in a Christian community like that before, and I just, mm. I loved it. I just loved the teaching. Yeah. I loved the biblical focus. It was fantastic. Now, your website says that the arrival of our four sons has thrown our lives into a beautiful kind of chaos. It has also confronted us with some searching questions about our life and faith. Now, how has motherhood confronted you with these questions and what set you on this journey to write biblical theologies of the family? Well, it did start as a personal question, a personal quest, if you like, for guidance. Uh, I think becoming a mother or father is difficult for everybody. It's a real change of mindset. And 
for me, I found it particularly difficult having grown up in a family that was very different to the kind of family we wanted to have. So uh, my parents weren't Christian uh, and my parents both worked full time for my whole childhood. So we had decided that I would uh, stay home with our kids, especially when they were small. And so I found I didn't really have a clue what I was doing. Um, and I just, there's so much information out there. There's so much advice and it's hard to sift through to know what's good advice or what's important advice. And you end up sort of focusing on the tiny details of your children's lives. And at one point it dawned on me that I was so busy counting how many servings of vegetables they were having each day that I wasn't thinking about, well, have I encouraged them to be kind or to share or to be grateful today? So we can just get bogged down in those tiny details and forget about what it's all about. So for me, back to prayer diaries, uh, you can actually see in a prayer diary, the hardest time for me was actually when our second son was born and you've now got a newborn and a toddler and trying to juggle those two is quite a lethal combination. And so that's when I was really pulling my hair out, feeling like a failure, feeling totally at sea, not knowing what which way was up and what I should be focusing on. So in my prayer diary at the time, I'm sort of just really crying out to God in desperation. And I just, I had not long come out of Bible college. My, I met my husband there. And so I thought, well, let's go back to the Bible. So I just, you can see in the prayer diary, I start on page one, Genesis one, and then I took about a year to read through the whole Bible and just trying to work out what God was saying about raising children. And I realized that the questions I came to the Bible with were far too small. You know, we often come to the Bible with our little questions about the details of our day-to-day -day life, but through the process of reading the Bible, I was forced to step right back and think, well, hang on a minute, what does it actually mean to be raising children in this world and as Christians? So that's how I came to write big picture parents, because that's really what the challenge was for me to get the big picture right. And then you can work out those tiny details. Yeah. How has the Bible given you this big picture that has helped you make sense of life and motherhood? I think, well, I've read a lot of Genesis. I think when we talk about raising children, a lot of materials and resources are sort of gospel centered. And of course, that's wonderful. We want our lives and our approach to raising children to be gospel centered. But there's sort of a foundational layer underneath that. The way I talk about it in Families in God's Plan is by thinking about the question, where are we? So right now, if you think about the question, well, where am I? There are lots of different answers to that question. I'm, it's sort of a series of concentric circles. I'm in my living room, I'm in my house, in my suburb, in my state, in my country and so on. And I think it, we need to get a little bit more of those layers when we're thinking about life in general, but especially raising children, thinking that we are in God's world, that he has created and that means certain things about what we're here for, but we're also in a fallen world and that's gonna impact how we do what we were created to do. Um, and of course, we're also in Jesus, uh, but we're also waiting for the world to come. And then if we think about the Old Testament as well, I think we're inheritors of God's promises to Abraham and 
uh, God's law and God's wisdom as well. So we're standing in all these circles at once. And I think reading the Bible really helped me to paint up, if you think like an oil painting, you paint up the layers to finally see uh, the bigger picture. So I think it really helped me. I, I came to God in my dilemma, feeling very confused and very lacking in confidence as a mother, but, but getting just the big picture, the big building blocks clear in my mind just gave me great clarity and confidence uh, to then go back to those small questions myself. You mentioned the book of Genesis. Man, that's got a lot about parenting and, and how not to do it, I would have thought. <laughs> most yes, of it I know. You don't do. need to go very far. The first parents, well, well that, they had well, a terrible that, time of it. That's where I'm going to start because you know, how did sin and the fall affect families? And and why are, why is family life so frustrating and frustrated? Yes, well, if you think about the judgments that God pronounced after the fall, uh, they're very much going to impact on family life that working the creation is going to be difficult and frustrating for Adam and uh, bearing children, raising children is going to be difficult. Marriage is going to be full of strife and conflict and we're always going to have the offspring of Satan biting at our heels. So we've got to be realistic here that that's the world we're raising our children in. And I hadn't really consciously thought about where Cain and Abel were born because you think the Garden of Eden, gee, that would have been a lovely place to raise children, but that's not where they were born. They were born after the expulsion from Eden and you can certainly see from how their story turned out how the fall impacted their family. So it's very interesting. It, it talks in Genesis 5 about how Adam's son was born in his likeness in the same way that Adam was born in the likeness of God. So we're passing down not just our created purpose, but we're also passing down the negative effects of the fall onto our children. So we've got to be realistic about that. But then what do we do next? I think being realistic and saying, well, we live in a fallen world. We're raising children in a fallen world. The world's not perfect. My kids are not perfect. I'm not perfect. That's a good starting place. It indeed is a great starting point. And how important is it? Because you write about this in, in, I think, both your books. How important is it that parents understand that they are raising image bearers, bearing the image of God in creation? Hmm. Well, this is where I do think we need more genesis in our child raising, <laughs> um, because we need to remember our human purpose that God gave us at the beginning, that we, it's, God is like a father uh, or like a master builder, and then he's handing over to us to continue on the work that he started. So he starts by forming the world and filling it, but he puts into creation the ability to then continue that on. You've got plants that bear seeds. You've got birds and fish who are then able to be fruitful and multiply. And, and for us as humans, we're able to then uh, fill the world with a new generation but also that aspect of ruling, of forming, shaping the creation and, and filling it with life. And I think that brings in um, just the basic life skills, work skills that we also need to pass on to our children, not just the basics of the gospel, but we're also raising children to become adults. So that's really helped me to think about, well, what kind of adults do we want to raise and what sort of skills do they need to know how to do in the world? Um, because I think 
the gospel-centered approach to raising children, sometimes we forget that there's actually a whole lot more to our role as parents where our children are our apprentices mm. in faith, but also in life and work. And so to have that mindset, I think often with our kids, we're always thinking, how can I get them out of the way so I can get on with what I need to do? And I fell into that trap in the early years. You're trying to, you know, you put them in front of the TV so you can get on with your work. But actually, when you see them as apprentices, you realize, no, actually, I need to do things in front of them. I need them to see what I'm doing and to then join in. And then I can teach them and then I can hand over to them. So, uh, yeah, I think that apprenticeship model is helpful. You mentioned in, uh, in your book, I think the larger one, that you and your husband, who's also a pastor, isn't he, I think, from memory, had very different, came from very different backgrounds, had very different ideas of how to do this, of how to raise children. How have you worked, had to work through that over the years? I think that's very common. Um, and certainly it's been true for us. He came from a very strict family and I came from a family where there were no rules and we were just sort of expected to participate as adults almost, and we did. So very different family backgrounds. A lot of talking, I think. When you come from different perspectives, you you can be surprised or shocked by what your husband or wife does or says, how they interact with the children. And usually all of us, we're actually, our starting point is the way we were raised because we think of raising children as this blank slate and we just apply these neutral techniques and it'll turn out like this or that. But actually we're very complicated human beings. So, you know, from the fall, it's been many generations of um, the twists and turns of sin and dysfunction. So we bring all that with us and you automatically go to do things the way you saw it done in your home growing up. And when that conflicts with your husband or wife, you can start to think what they're doing is, it's not just, you know, a bit misguided it's it's wrong it's ethically wrong and you sort of have these moments where you wonder why did they do that or say that so i think point one always think the best of one another and always assume that the other person is trying to do something positive uh, and then talk 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 i think that's the only way we've been able to manage oh why did you do that ask questions don't assume motives oh, he did that because he's selfish or lazy, or we, we think these horrible thoughts when they're actually not true. If you ask your husband or wife, oh, why did you say that? Or why did you do that? You usually find actually a lot of thought went into it. And what we have found is if you sit down again, back to the big picture, if you sit down and talk about what are the values we want to characterize our family, where are we headed? You find your destination's probably the same. You both want your kids to be respectful, uh, polite, obedient, um, you know, affectionate, all the different things you might want for your children. You probably agree on those big things, but you may just have different ideas of how you're going to get there. So I think a lot of discussion is helpful. And the thing I've realised in recent times is that we forget we live in a world that is very gender neutral. And you might have noticed I've never used the word parenting in this interview so far. I don't like the word parenting because for several reasons, I think um, one of them is that I don't know if there is such a thing as gender neutral parenting <laughs> because we have mothers and fathers and we approach the task in different ways. And for me, it's been a great learning curve working out that because I'm a woman and I'm a mother, 
and my husband's a father, we actually come to the task of raising children in different ways. And that is a wonderful thing. So actually, instead of expecting my husband to do things exactly the same way I would do them, actually appreciating his fatherly way of doing things and saying, oh, my kids really need that as well as the motherly way. So I think yeah. that plays into it too. Yeah, I was going to ask you how you divide your, if I can use the word labour, how, how do you divide your labour and home? Which thing, what, what things do you do and what things does he do? Yeah, that's another one where I think we um, bring our background automatically without thinking about it. So in my husband's family growing up, it was fairly traditional. Mum does everything inside the four walls and dad does everything outside the four walls, the mowing, the garbage, that kind of thing. And in my family, both parents worked full time. So when they came home, both parents did 50% of the housework because they'd both been out all day. And uh, as we got older, we did it. So uh, for example, cooking in my family was always dad's domain, not mum's. Okay. So yep. um, we sort of had different expectations. Uh, and so it's been good to talk about that. and. We have, I guess, chosen for me to focus on the kids at home, especially in their younger years. And my husband has been going out to work or sometimes working from home, but he's spent the more time doing that paid work. But then just trying to make sure, I think we've got four sons, so um, it's really important for them to have time with dad. And actually, since our fourth son's been born, I've found it quite difficult to manage all the inside the home things and we've just decided that to avoid stress at about 5 p.m every night my husband actually <laughs> i have the kitchen till about 4 p.m and then i hand over to him and he does the dinner so yeah i think it's a work in progress and i think again we've got to keep talking i wish rito was here because i'd like to have thrown the, uh, the interview over to him at this point and ask him how he gets around this because he's got five boys and yeah. i don't i don't, I don't know <laughs> Yeah, anyway. So what coming back to the biblical theology, what role do the covenants of God? We talked about Abraham and Sarah, who got themselves into a right tangle with different ideas about how to raise children, I would have thought. But what role do the covenants play in family life and scripture? Yeah, it's a very interesting one because we come from a very individualistic society. And so we are blind sometimes to the more yeah, household ways that God has interacted with people over history so when god called abraham he had abraham's whole descendancy in view so he made promises to abraham and your descendants but they're not automatically given in that way god also said i'll read this out sort of balance that we see here Abraham, this is from Genesis 18, 18 and 19. Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation and all nations on earth will be blessed through him. For I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised. So God makes these big promises to people and their descendants, but he also calls them to raise their the next generation to trust in those promises. So we think about Abraham, all he had was faith. He didn't have anything to attract God's favour to him, but he believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. So if we want our children to participate in the covenants, 
they are heirs of the covenant. They they are promised these things, but we also need to teach them to know the those promises and trust in those promises. So I think some people seem to think that God worked um, through households in the Old Testament, but then suddenly in the New Testament, children should be seen as little non-Christians yes. to be evangelized. Whereas I come from a more Anglican covenantal perspective. I don't see there's a discontinuity there. I see in the New Testament, God working through households and children growing up into the faith of their parents and taking it on for themselves. But to begin with, I think it's okay to assume that your children are Christian and growing up in a Christian family. That's the language we use in our family. And you've got at the end of Peter's Pentecost sermon, we've got this promises for you and your children. Mm. And then we've got in 1 Corinthians 7, 14, Paul says, as it is, your children are holy. So the children of even just one believer are considered holy or part of the covenant community by Paul. So I think we see continuity there rather than discontinuity. But mm. I think the difference comes in whether you're a first generation believer or a second generation believer. We see a lot of first generation believers in the New Testament, which is so exciting. And so Obviously, it's a new thing for them and they're making a break from their family. But then what happens with the next generation? And mm. I think we see in the New Testament, Paul is always writing to children, not always, but regularly he addresses children, expecting that they'll be part of the church gathering. Um, and so I think we see the New Testament writers presuming that children of the first generation are now growing up in the covenant community and enjoying its blessings. And we pray that as they get older, they will step out in their own faith as well. Am I right in remembering that you, you write in one of the books about your grandmother's prayer book? Was your, was your grandmother a believer? Yeah, a wonderful part of my story is the influence of my grandmothers, because mm. as I said, my parents both worked full time. So I didn't, I couldn't call them and sort of commiserate about being a stay-at-home mum but I could call my grandmas and I did talk to them granny quite power. Lot. Granny power. <laughs> I know um <laughs> I so my it. grandmothers both had a kind of quiet British faith I would perhaps describe it as so they didn't generally go to church every week and I don't know what their personal devotional life was like but they they certainly trusted in God in their own way so the prayer book is a gift that I was given by my grandmother and that is an heirloom her mother was given this prayer book on her wedding day in wow. 1911 mm -hmm. uh, as a gift from her own mother <laughs> mm. so we've got lots of generations of women here and I'm, I'm blessed to be holding on to that Anglican prayer book to pass on to the next generation. In this case, I'll have to be a boy. <laughs> but, yeah, so the blessing I've had is that as I've come to know God, it's been uh, just through God's providence in an Anglican context, but that has meant I'm also connecting in with my ancestors who, who practised Christianity in an Anglican way. So uh, it's been wonderful to the reconnect. Co the covenant that. at work, practically. There you are through the generations. Yeah. I, I yes, have a similar story. Yeah, absolutely wonderful. Wonderful. Yeah. Last question, uh, Harriet. Unfortunately, we could talk for hours about all this sort of stuff. It's fascinating. How can we, because people are going to say, why don't you, why don't you ask you the question about how we bring our children up in faith? So I'm going to mm -hmm. ask you that question. How do we as parents or grandparents, bring our children up to love Jesus? It's a wonderful question. 
obviously the first thing is our faith and our example. So to be continuing to trust in Jesus ourselves, to be talking about God, to be praying and reading the Bible in front of our children and with our children, that apprenticeship model, tell them why you're thinking about God right now. Tell them about God. There's, I think there's a balance. There's the incidental day-to-day. -day. We're looking at a beautiful sunset and we can say, hey, isn't God wonderful? Or they're learning about their bodies at school and we say, hey, isn't that wonderful how God's designed things? So there's those incidental things throughout the day or the prayer. We can't find something. Hey, let's stop and pray. Or someone's upset before bedtime. Shall I pray with you? Um, and just chatting the gospel as we go through the days. Uh, but then there's the more planned uh, rhythms um, of each day and each week. So I think it's good to have structured discipleship a family devotion time, opening God's word or a children's Bible and praying together. We like to do a mixture of set prayers and on-the-spot prayers. So we say the Lord's Prayer together um, as a family every night and then everyone gets a chance to add their own personal prayers to that. And I think being part of a church is incredibly important. And I talk in both books about the family of God uh, as the best support that families have uh, in raising their children to know Jesus. So that's the weekly rhythm of on Sundays, our family is part of a bigger family. Um, so there are some things that I would, I would mention as important, but I don't like to be too prescriptive. Again, read the Bible, love God, and, and ask him to show you uh, how you can pass that on. A very fine-looking cat has just passed his or her way across <laughs> <Sorry>. the screen. <laughs> yeah, we have two of them. We can't see. What's the cat's name? Uh, we've got Daisy here. She's the old lady cat. And then Daisy. we've got Lulu, who's a kitten, Daisy. making how, trouble how, in the background. <laughs> how old is Daisy? Daisy would be nearing eight. Oh, that's quite an elderly cat. All right, then, Harriet, thank you so much for your time. Harriet Connor, the author of Families in God's Plan, just out from YouthWorks Media. And now, where can people find your articles, uh, Harriet? Mostly I write for Growing Faith at the moment. So you can subscribe to the Growing Faith uh, e-newsletter, which comes out every month. And you can find us on the YouthWorks Media Facebook page. I also um, have a personal website, harrietconnor.com, where you can find articles that I've written in other places as well. Very good. Thank you so much. Thank you for your time, Harriet. That was great. Thank you for having me. Pleasure. We really hope you've enjoyed this episode of the God Story Podcast. If you want to help us make more great episodes like this one, you can head over to our Patreon page and become a God Story Podcast supporter. You'll receive our undying gratitude, plus a few bonus goodies for your ongoing support. Just visit patreon.com slash godstorypodcast. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash godstorypodcast. As always, you can get in touch with us via our website, godstorypodcast.com.